Thank you for downloading this episode of Case Notes. Case Notes was recorded at the Royal College of Physicians of Edinburgh as part of the Edinburgh History of Medicine seminar series. You can get news of our latest events if you follow us on Twitter at RCP Heritage. We hope you enjoy the talk. Thank you, Ian, for that very um, kind introduction. And thank you all for coming. It's a great pleasure to have such a full house on a Wednesday afternoon. So, did any of you ever see Dr. Tetrazzini perform? I say perform advisedly because his operations were performances. He would start by throwing his scalpel across the room into the patient and then make his entrance like a ballet dancer. His speed was incredible. I don't give them time to die, he would say. Tumours put him in a frenzy of rage. Fucking undisciplined cells, he would snarl, advancing on the tumour like a knife fighter. A young man leaps down into the operating theatre and, whipping out a scalpel, advances on the patient. Dr. Benway, an espontaneo, stop him before he guts my patient. Probably by now um, you've identified the um, uh, completely original pro style of William Burroughs in his 1959 um, heroin classic, uh, The Naked Lunch. Burroughs is doing lots of things here. Um, firstly, I think showing that you can be tremendously funny when you're completely out of your gourd. But I think what, for my purposes, he's doing is thinking about surgery, anatomy, medicine as varieties of performance. I don't think it's any surprise that the places where we do anatomy and surgery, not just practice it, but also learn it, are called theatres. Ah, here's the old shaman himself as Dr. Benway in a, a little-known 1983 film. So here's a famous theatre, very influential early modern anatomy theatre at Leiden. You can see here the classic early modern idea of the theatre. It really was a theatre, rather reminiscent of the room that we're sitting in today. Think also about all of those wonderful hats, what fun the artist must have had drawing all of those. Much closer to the present day, we have the old operating theatre at Charing Cross in London in 1906, much more familiar to us. You can see here anaesthesia being practised. You can see antisepsis, if not quite asepsis, being practised. But it's still a theatre. You've still got those ranks of terried, those serried ranks of seats. Now, of course, a theatre is where you find actors and occasionally overactors, heroes, villains, and most of all, as I've said, spectacle. So what I want to do this afternoon as my title suggests, is talk about the spectacle of anatomy and surgery and disease in the long 19th century through what I think are the most vivid and potent set of sources we have. Now, my involvement in this project goes back about four years. I was tremendously lucky as part of my engagement fellowship to have the chance to get involved in the Wellcome Library's digitisation project. I'm sure you all know about the Wellcome Library in London. If any of you don't, I, I wouldn't suggest you dash out of this lecture theatre right now and start pursuing it, but certainly um, make it a priority. It's the most fantastic institution. And the library is currently in the middle of digitising what is the world's largest collection of historical, medical, surgical, scientific images and making them available online. They're also available under Creative Commons licence. For many years, the fees to use these images were rather high, but for those of you who are writers, teachers, journalists, broadcasters, whatever you may be, you're now free to use all of the images I'm going to show you, and I think about 1.4 million others completely free of charge as long as you um, use a Creative Commons licence. 
Now, I was working with the wonderful art publishers Thames and Hudson on a series of books bringing these images and bringing this collection to a wider public. My job was partly to select the images, but I think more importantly to write a text to go with them that draws on modern scholarship to provide the best possible context, the best possible introduction um, to these images for a wider audience, going beyond the usual scholarly community and the, the artists who've engaged with these images, but trying to think how we might take this to a, to a general public. So that's what I'm going to try and do for you this afternoon. I think these images are beautiful and morbid, singular and sublime. They're icons of a certain kind of clinical objectivity, but their aura of objectivity is the result of countless human interventions, both conscious and unconscious. They give us, so to speak, the outside of the inside. They're insistently concerned with surfaces, but surfaces that in life and health, of course, are never seen. These images can seem to epitomize progress in a century of light, but they also carry an ineradicable whiff of the morgue, the exercise of state power over paupers and criminals, of the body violated and nakedness revealed. They're founded in the practices of dissection, and in some ways, they're parasitic upon the dead, sometimes the body-snatched or executed dead. They present an uncanny spectacle of the dead body articulated, and the bad pun there is intended, articulated in the anatomical sense of being prepared and carefully mounted for display, but articulated also in the sense that they're made to speak in a voice that is not wholly their own. They instantiate, as we'll see, a revolutionary concept of clinical authority, one that's rooted in the dead patient's body rather than the living patient's voice. But most of all, I think, they tell us about relationships, relationships between an artist, artists and anatomists, between the living and the dead, between revolutionary medical ideas and the culture in which they arose. So what I want to do is take your hand... Sorry. That's the reception that joke deserves. Take your hand and lead you behind the scenes in our theatre of anatomy... I want to ask a series of questions. What attitudes, images, theories, ideas do these images encode? How were they made and by whom? What can we say, perhaps most interestingly, about the people or the parts of people represented in them? And how should we look at them today? Historians' answers to all of these questions typically turn, in one way or another, on the social and intellectual upheavals of the 19th century, a series of revolutions in the ways that Western medical practitioners saw the human body and the ways in which they knew disease. In the hundred years or so in which most of the images I'm going to show you were made, from the last decade of the 18th to the first decade of the 20th century, Western medicine began a long conversation with modernity in many forms. Science, technology, of course, industrial society, urban life, but also mechanised warfare, the long shadow of imperialism. In doing so, it decisively abandoned an ancient consensus about the structure of the body and the meaning of disease. For elite classical Renaissance and Enlightenment physicians, medicine, sorry, health was, roughly speaking, a balanced constitution. Balance is the key word here. A surfeit or an insufficiency of humours, vital spirits, nervous stimulation lay at the root of all diseases. Physicians, learned, humane, attuned to all the failings of the flesh, much as I'm sure the RCP wishes to see itself today, would negotiate a diagnosis and a course of treatment with their genteel or aristocratic patient masters. Surgeons, meanwhile, the carpenters of the body, would be on hand to carry out uh, messy and painful physical interventions. Blood might be let, 
bile might be purged, a change of air or diet might be advised, but most of all, patient and physician would watch and wait, interrupting the, nat the natural course of a disease, trying to outstrip the body's own powers of healing, might in itself be fatal. A little more than a century later, however, on the eve of the First World War, medicine was, for most, if not quite all, of its practitioners, lo no longer a learned art. Physicians and surgeons had signed up to an uneasy compact with the new sciences of physiology and bacteriology. In acquiring the disciplines of the laboratory and the microscope, they entered a strange, compelling world, one in which localised physical lesions or invasions of bacteria, rather than general constitutional disturbances, disrupted tissues composed of cells. Almost every word in that sentence, every noun in that sentence, was new in the 19th century. To borrow a word from the sociologist, uh, founders of sociology, Max Weber, this new world was founded in a vision of the body disenchanted. No timeless mysteries, only temporary ignorance. No vital force or soul, only an endless dance of enzymes and substrates. In a century obsessed with, even haunted by, the possibility of progress, a new generation of physicians cast themselves as the shock troops of the future perfect. And here's one of them speaking in 1801. You may take notes for 20 years, from morning to night at the bedside of the sick, and all will be to you only a confusion of symptoms, which, not being united in one point, will necessarily present only a train of incoherent phenomena. But open up a few bodies, and this obscurity will soon disappear, which observation alone would never have been able to dissipate. Now, these sentences from the Parisian anatomist Xavier Bichat have become a kind of retrospective manifesto for what historians have come to call Paris medicine. Forged in the newly secularised hospitals, city hospitals of the French Revolution, Paris medicine made pathological anatomy the foundation of medical thought, practice and education. Citizen physicians and citizen surgeons studied together for the first time in these hospitals, as self-consciously radical as the sans-culottes on the streets outside. The images they made seem to echo the English satirist James Gilray's disturbingly corporeal caricatures of French revolutionaries, another band of radicals with designs on the body politic. In large urban hospitals crammed with the sick, voiceless poor, his students could dissect and diagnose on a near-industrial scale, learning to correlate symptoms in life with lesions in death. And here are some of them at it in London, probably in the late 18th or early 19th century. This is um, Thomas Rowlandson, possibly Thomas Rowlandson. It's almost echoes of Edvard Munch. In the, if you look at the inverted face of the cadaver on the extreme right, there's a real sort of dead scream of horror going on there. Now, these lesions came to see at the, seem at the heart of um, uh, pathological anatomy. These lesions were, at least in principle, amenable to surgical intervention in ways that generalised constitutional imbalances were not. And the clinical gaze of Paris medicine gave fresh prominence to surgeons and their craft. New instruments like the stethoscope, new techniques for recording symptoms like the fever chart, new statistics compiled from thousands of standardised case records. It's worth saying the standardised printed case form seems such an obvious, boring invention, but it was a new thing in the hospitals of revolutionary Paris. It's all about standardisation, almost the, the factory production, if you like, of doctors and patients and knowledge. All of these new techniques were used to visualise disease within the patient's body and distinct from the patient's own voice. Now, through the 19th century, the idea of Paris medicine as an origin myth was made to serve many different ends. 
American physicians, for example, took it up partly as a means of distancing themselves from British medicine in the War of Independence, as indeed did the physicians of Glasgow and Edinburgh in the late 18th and early 19th centuries. But disparate groups of practitioners across Europe, the US, and their colonies could endorse this rhetoric of a shared enterprise, creating, in Benedict Anderson's phrase, an imagined community of professionals around the, new, around the notion of a new materialist scientific medicine. So practically, as a, a corpus of thought and technique, and symbolically as an emblem of modernity, Paris medicine was the single greatest intellectual force acting on the Western medical tradition in the early 19th century. Under its influence, physicians and surgeons could conceive of the body not as a unified whole, not as, if you like, a patient, but as a collage of tissues. Like Victor Frankenstein, they were learning to dismantle the body, to subvert its integrity, even to rethink the meaning of life and death. It's no surprise that Mary Shelley wrote Frankenstein exactly when she did. It's also no coincidence that most of these depictions of health and disease were made and used in dissecting rooms, the characteristic spaces of a clinical order in the ascendant. But of course, as those of you who've studied medicine, been inside a dissecting room will know, the mere opening up of human bodies is no more a route to clinical expertise than is the window of a butcher's shop. Bichat's radical empiricism, this idea of opening up a few bodies and that in itself will dispel the ignorance of centuries. Bichat's radical empiricism went along with a pervasive concern for what might be called the disciplining of observation. Atlases of anatomy and pathology were central to the enterprise of collective empiricism that um, the historians Lorraine Daston and Peter Gallison have seen at work across European science and medicine in the 18th and 19th centuries. If you're struck by the idea that something like objectivity might have a history, that it might have meant radically different things, that its meaning might have had to be established through social processes, I heartily recommend their book, Objectivity by Daston and Gallison. It's huge, but it's fantastic. Now, these books, these atlases, these anatomical atlases, could be used to teach a shared disciplinary gaze through which the mastery of scientific practices was linked to the assiduous cultivation of a certain kind of self. As we always find in the history of medicine, acquiring knowledge is always linked to acquiring virtue. It's about becoming a certain kind of person as you acquire a certain kind of knowledge. For the leaders of the medical profession in the 19th century, dissection was as much a rite of passage, a moral and sentimental education, as a simple tool of clinical instruction. Experience of the dead body was, they argued, central to the formation of medical and surgical character. A good doctor was detached and analytical, thoughtful and reflective, aware of, though never overwhelmed by, the enormous responsibilities and privileges of the profession. This is all about making a new professional identity for doctors. Conversely, even the most detailed anatomical knowledge was completely useless if its possessor panicked or fainted, if they were too nervous to hold a knife or, perhaps worse, too bloodthirsty to stop cutting. Dissection moulded the bodies of dissectors, making clear eyes, fine fingers, a sharp brain, a stout heart, and most of all, a strong stomach. Here's a classic bit of 19th century kitsch. This is um, l'anatomie du coeur. You can see here the learned doctor. He's venerable. He's a professional. He's dressed in the 
um, the garb of a French professional. You can see from his beard and his hair and his spectacles, he's a scholar and he's contemplating the great mystery of life. I like to think he's, he's asking that question that Sigmund Freud asked a generation later, which is, what is it that women want? What is at the heart, so to speak, of that difference? So images of the human body in health and disease, or rather the use of these images in teaching and practice, built a community of clinicians with shared skills, principles, and values who could observe their patient's body in the same consistent and coherent manner. And the books in which these images appeared were changing. 18th century anatomical works, of which the library here has a, a great and beautiful profusion, tended to be quite grand affairs, oversized, exquisitely bound, printed on fine paper, and published usually in editions of a few hundred, mostly for subscribers. There's interesting scholarly work on the extent to which any of the great anatomical atlases were actually used in dissection rooms, as opposed to put on the shelf and used as um, symbols of status or symbols of learning, symbols of one's connections. But with the expansion of medical education in the early 19th century, partly linked to, to, to Paris medicine, this new way of, of doing medicine and teaching it, Publishers began to mass-produce cheap, practical textbooks for impecunious students. A valued anatomical or pathological treatise would be lugged around in a satchel, propped up against a cadaver on the mortuary table, spattered with gore, scribbled on, and dog-eared. These books were not, so to speak, part of the student's dress uniform, but rather a piece of field kit. A map, perhaps, would be the appropriate metaphor, something used uh, tested, trusted, and used to destruction in the bloody business at hand. Now, these books and their illustrations can be read as a rich microcosm of Daston and Gallison's notion of collective empiricism. They're the fruit of a sophisticated collaboration between artists and anatomists, engravers and printers, publishers, professors, teachers and students, and, of course, not forgetting the bodies of the dead, silent partners in every sense. So how did illustrations of the human body inform, perhaps even determine, what a student or an anatomist might see on the operating table or in the morgue? What aesthetic and cultural values were inscribed in these images and by whom? And of course, one of the oldest questions in Western art, and here's Vesalius getting to grips with it. You can see the great original of this outside in the case next to <clears throat> my own sick rose, um, a con conjunction I was delighted to see. Um, here's Vesalius getting to grips with this question. How could a picture come to see, seem more truthful and more eloquent than a real human body? The pursuit of anatomical reality with the naked eye or with a lens, with a scalpel or with a pen, has never been straightforward. Turning a person into a thing, a cadaver on a dissecting table, a specimen in a jar, an illustration in a notebook, demands labour, and not merely the physical labour of cutting and mounting, preserving and engraving. It requires the intellectual labour of reducing confusion and imperfection to comprehensible order, and the cultural label of labour of bridging contentious boundaries between life and death, personhood and object, speech and silence. The objects and images that result from these effortful transformations are always hybrids, literally in that Frequently, they combine bone and metal, tissue and paper, blood and ink. Think of the classic specimen jar in the anatomical museum, a fundamentally hybrid object. But they're also metaphorically hybrid in that they show the once living body transformed, good example of this up on the screen, transformed by craft, context and theory, a confluence of art and anatomy. 
From the 18th to the mid-20th century, most European academies of art had professors of anatomy on their staff. William Hunter, for example, great <coughs> Glaswegian anatomist, taught at Joshua Reynolds Royal Academy in London from 1768 until his death in 1783. And here's Hunter doing exactly that. The lecture rooms of less exalted schools might have a skeleton dangling from a rope alongside a muscular écorché. In other words, a cast in plaster or bronze of a flayed human body, often that of an executed criminal set in a classical pose. Painters themselves could point to their own traditional tradition of anatomical inquiry, reaching back to Leonardo and Michelangelo. And in works like George Stubbs's Anatomy of the Horse, they pursued comparative anatomy with as much vigour as Hunter. Artists and anatomists shared a common concern with the human body, its form and movement, and the question of how to represent this convincingly in two dimensions. Here's uh, Charles Landseer, father of the, uh, the more famous uh, landscape painter Edwin Landseer, getting to grips with exactly that question. Here he is in a dissecting room, dissecting, as you can see, a, a beautifully and carefully dissected body with this question of how, how to represent this, this, this strange three-dimensional structure in two dimensions. How do you represent convincingly a human body, not just its structure, but its pose, the way the muscles work together to establish posture, character, and life, and so on. So making medical images was a fundamentally collaborative business requiring many distinct and complementary kinds of expertise. A physician or a surgeon or an anatomist would decide what aspect of anatomy or pathology was to be addressed in a book. He would secure a supply of body parts or bodies and a private space in which to dissect them and usually would prepare specimens for, 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 for display, for illustration. A draftsman would make detailed drawings noting colours and textures an engraver would cut woodblocks or copper plates as mirror images of the final illustrations. A compositor would lay out the text and images. A printer and binder would make the book, and a publisher would underwrite production and sell the finished volume. So this is far from a conventional, or far, I should say, from a modern idea of objectivity. This is far from unfiltered. You can think of this knowledge, as it were, being passed from hand to hand in the making of these images. Now, these collaborators occupied a curiously equivocal position. They were not quite the invisible technicians in Stephen Shapin's studies of early modern natural philosophy. They weren't quite invisible, but for the most part, they certainly weren't given equal status or credit. So when anatomists claimed authorship of these texts, when Hunter or Vesalius put his name on the spine of a book, what exactly were they asserting? They were, I suppose, asserting their skill as dissectors. Perhaps more importantly, the anatomical and pathological knowledge that they'd gained through dissection and were now setting down in a book. But in order to make this claim, in order to make this claim of ownership and objectivity, they had to assert control and tacitly acknowledge the difficulty of control. As I've said, how could this idea of an objective clinical gaze be sustained when it had passed through several fallible pairs of eyes and hands? One solution to this conundrum was to give artists a kind of clinical gaze of their own. In preparing his Icones Anatomicae, the Göttingen anatomist Albrecht von Haller made more than 50 dissections of particular anatomical regions in an effort to show his draftsmen what was typical and what was atypical. Now Haller here, we're thinking about styles of objectivity. Haller here was drawing on a classic Enlightenment ideology expressed most vividly in the taxonomical studies of um, Carl Linnaeus, 
in which the particular accidental features of individual specimens were discarded. What you were aiming for instead was to, to depict the underlying form, a kind of platonic vision of taxonomy or anatomy. What is the ideal body? Not what is this particular specimen, but what is the ideal body? Others experimented with what we might call mechanical styles of objectivity. We can see here a little plate um, from William Cheseldon's The Anatomy of the Human Body. We're interested here not so much in Cheseldon himself, but in the two Dutch artists he employed, Van, Gucht, Van der Gucht and Schinvert. They used, as you can see here, a camera obscura for making drawings for osteo um, osteographica. Note, by the way, that the skeleton they're drawing is upside down. Camera obscuras in this period simply were, were, were pinhole cameras which produced an inverted image. So if you wanted to see something the right way up, you had to suspend it upside down. Fascinatingly, Cheseldon, though, wasn't convinced that the camera obscura captured an acceptable version of anatomical truth. Here is something that I think we moderns would see as much more objective. It's, a, it's close to a camera. It's close to that idea of capturing an unmediated snapshot of natural reality. But Cheseldon, in fact, very carefully corrected the tracings, again, trying to eliminate what he saw as the, the individual idiosyncrasy individual idiosyncrasies of particular specimens and produce a kind of idealized platonic version of human anatomy. For most anatomists, however, the answer was a great deal more prosaic. Choose the best artists, work closely with them, and supervise their efforts at every stage. Another Dutch draftsman, Jan van Riemsdyk, came to London in 1750 and drew for many leading anatomists, most notably William Hunter. The genesis of Hunter's masterpiece, his anatomy of the human gravid uterus, Here's the most famous image from that book. The genesis of this book shows just how time-consuming this process could be. So, Hunter prepared dissections and wrote text for each image. Rimsdijk made 61 drawings under um, Hunter's scrupulous eye, along with three other draftsmen who drew one or two specimens each. We're not quite sure why. 16 engravers cut plates under the supervision of Robert Strange, a Scottish artist, a friend of Hunter's. And the book was printed by John Baskerville of Birmingham, who was an innovative printer and type designer. If you use Microsoft Word, you'll still find Baskerville as one of the typefaces you can choose. Each of the 34 plates in the book represented a particular specimen. You can see in this image it's not idealised. It's something closer to what we might think of as a photographic idea of objectivity. But even so, Hunter took pains to inject some of the parts with wax to give them what he saw as a more realistic shape or appearance, and he instructed his engravers to soften the cut edges of dissected flesh. So again, this isn't a simple, raw, unmediated idea of objectivity. This is about combining an abstract sense of knowledge with the details of a particular specimen. It's also worth saying here, um, uh, John Hunter, uh, William's younger brother, may have played a slightly darker part in this, um, in this story, but we'll come to that little bit of body snatching a little bit later on. Some anatomists were able to cut this Gordian knot by um, making their own drawings and engravings for their texts. When he wasn't teaching anatomy to the painter Edwin Landseer, the Scottish artist and surgeon Charles Bell produced fine drawings and watercolours for his Anatomy of the Brain, published in 1802. You can see one of the engravings here. Um, even Bell, however, wasn't an engraver, and his published images bear the very small signature of the English craftsman Thomas Medland. You can see the little 
tiny little scrawl at the bottom there saying T. Medlin sculpts it. Now, this was in a book that had Bell's name on the spine and Bell's name on the front page, even though Bell hadn't actually made any of the final images that went into the book. Now, all of the images, um, anatomical images I've shown you so far are in black and white. The first full-colour anatomical atlas, Myology, had been published in the 1740s by the French anatomist Jacques-Fabien Gautier d'Agotier. This used a separate mezzotint um, plate for each colour, so each image was made up of four or five prints, and as a result, um, the images he produced were very heavy, very gloomy, quite difficult to decipher. Some people absolutely love them. They look very romantic. They look very um, realistic to modernise, but to try and learn anatomy from them is extremely difficult indeed. A new technique, lithography, produced lighter, clearer images, much more amenable to mass reproduction, and it was lithographs that were taken up in London's flowering of anatomical book publishing in the first half of the 19th century. But speaking to the Medical and Physical Society of St. Thomas's Hospital in 1885, the artist and anatomy lecturer William Anderson argued that this flowering of anatomical art had come abruptly to an end. Anatomists and physicians, he said, could no longer rely, should no longer rely, on fallible human artists to represent their discoveries. Scientific and medical image-making should, he said, like so much else in the 19th century, be isolated from the bias and imprecision of human craft by automation. Anderson urged his audience to endorse the impersonal, mechanical eye of the camera as the route to true objectivity. Anderson, though, speaking as he was in 1885, was already behind the times. Within a decade of its invention in the 1830s and 1840s, some European doctors had begun to use photography in their practice, typically for recording case histories of individual patients in fracture clinics and asylums. One of the first really popular scientific books to have photographs in was Charles Darwin's Expression of the Emotion in Man and Animals. You'll still find the images from that book of actors expressing certain pictures or monkeys being monkeys or children smiling and screaming um, reproduced as photographs. Still a very um, popular book today. By the late 1880s, photolithography enabled the mass reproduction of photographs in books. Indeed, one US doctor in the 1890s complained that his colleagues had gone photo mad, something we may be familiar with today when all of us carry around a high-quality camera in our, um, in our pockets. But this wasn't a case of simple progress, of one clearly superior technology replacing an outdated and inferior predecessor. As a scientific medium, photography itself was far from perfect, and Anderson's idea of photography as a neutral, objective, impersonal medium was, of course, itself deeply flawed. From the very first years of photography, it was abundantly clear that photographs were not always truthful. The camera did lie. Spirit photographs, along with many other stunts and hoaxes, proved this to be the case. It's very striking that when human beings get hold of any new technology, almost the first thing they start doing is tricking other human beings with it. Equally, however, even um, putting aside the question of stunts and, and hoaxes and lies, um, the eyes of the viewer had to be guided, and this could not be done without some degree of human intervention. In an engraving, in a lithograph, the artist could use shading and texture and levels of detail to bring out the significant parts of a specimen. Of course, the problem with an unretouched photograph is that it gives near equal emphasis to everything in its field of view. So the adoption of photography reflected the changing state of science and medicine at the end of a revolutionary century. It embodied 
not a superior technology, but what Dastan and Gallison have termed uh, the, the techno-scientific ethic of self-elimination. Photography offered a seemingly objective way of capturing what was fleeting, what might escape mere human attention, what might or might not actually be there. It pretended to permanence, but in doing so, of course, it alluded to mortality. The ghost of the vanitas, along with the rather more solid spooks faked up by Victorian spirit mediums, haunted the black bellows of the camera. Now, Paris medicine made the bodies of the dead more eloquent than the voices of the living, but it also turned dead bodies into a kind of resource, a resource recruited in the service of the nation-state. As medical education came, as it still does, to depend on dissection, states began to reframe the rights and responsibilities of their citizens with regard to health and medicine. Public hospitals would treat anyone without charge, regardless of their rank or wealth, but in return, citizens were increasingly expected to give their bodies during life and after death in the service of the state and the medical profession. Amongst other things, this new settlement was intended to replace what might be called the Enlightenment's mixed economy of the dead. Another, rather more sinister layer of invisible technicians in many of these images, which included judges, executioners, undertakers, body snatchers, and the odd gang of murderers. I think you might possibly have heard too much about Burke and Hare in Edinburgh. Is that fair to say? Let me introduce you by way of a contrast to the far more prolific English gang of murderers, um, Bishop and Williams, possibly some of the most prolific body snatchers in history. It's very striking. But Burke and Hare murdered it's less than a dozen, isn't it? I don't think it's, it's, not a, it's not a terribly high number, not to be competitive or anything. But <laughs> Burke and Williams, I, some estimates, I think, I think say upwards of 100. Astonishing that the case isn't better known. Anyway, from 1752, where are we? There we are. From 1752, the sentence for murder in English courts included public dissection. Um, and you can see here, uh, this is uh, William Hogarth, the last stage of the four stages of cruelty. Tom Nero, the anti-hero, was the unfortunate man uh, lying on the dissecting table. Again, you can see how it's very striking when caricaturists and artists depict bodies on the slab. So often they depict them as if they're still in pain. Nero looks as if he's suffering, even though he's far past it. And down at the bottom, there's, a, there's almost always a dog in Hogarth's engravings, and um, there's a dog here chewing on Tom Nero's heart, his black heart. While we're speaking of um, dogs and um, uh, Hogarth, by the way, do you, do you all know the famous portrait, the double portrait of Hogarth with his pug, called The Painter and the Pug? Beautiful thing. Do any of you know what his pug was called? Trump. <laughs> do you know why it was called Trump? You can probably guess why it was called Trump, because it wouldn't stop the party. <laughs> and they say history has no value. <laughs> anyway, um, so, yes, body snatching. Um, so going back to William Hunter's uh, Anatomy of the Human Gravity Uterus, the wombs and fetuses um, depicted in that book were almost certainly um, cut from body-snatched corpses, as visibly pregnant women were at least notionally never hanged. He couldn't have got those bodies, legally speaking. And as I say, William Hunter's younger brother, John, um, it's rumoured that in, his, um, in the first few years of his time in London, he was, he was working as a procurer of bodies for, um, for his brother. If you look at simply the number of bodies that the Hunter brothers dissected, they were, they were dissecting just themselves far more bodies than were being produced by the gallows. So they were certainly body snatching, and it's not impossible they were involved in murdering to order as well. So there is a distinctly um, sinister side to many of these images. 
England's 1832 Anatomy Act abolished the dissection of executed criminals, but instead it allowed that anybody who died unclaimed in a workhouse or a hospital could be taken to dissection in a, a registered anatomy school. The remarkable growth of burial insurance societies in the years after 1832 reflects the increasingly desperate efforts of the nation's poor to ensure some dignity um, for themselves excuse me, in death. The act did effectively put the resurrection men out of business, but in the historian Ruth Richardson's much-quoted phrase, it turned what had been a coercive post-mortem punishment for murder into a coercive post-mortem punishment for poverty. But this was apparently not a fit matter for discussion in the pages of textbooks illustrated with um, dissections carried out on the corpses of unclaimed paupers. Objectivity demanded the obliteration of identity. The dead became nothing more than the raw material of clinical expertise, consummate and involuntary invisible technicians. In other nations, race as much as poverty determined the source of bodies. James Edmondson and John Harley Warner, two great American historians of medicine, have shown that medical schools in the US, especially, perhaps not surprisingly, in the South, tended to obtain bodies from African-American cemeteries in poorer neighborhoods. Many of these schools were quite open about the fact that their departments of anatomy were filled with well-to-do white students dissecting the cadavers of poor black locals, even after frameworks for donating and claiming bodies were introduced in the late 19th century. Um, they produced a fascinating, it's, it's called dissection, I believe. They produced a, a sort of coffee table book you don't want to leave on your coffee table. I think the most fascinating thing, many, it became a, a, a fashion, a habit for um, American medical students in the late 19th, early 20th century to have postcards made of dissection scenes and send them home, not just as kind of, you know, hello, mum and dad, this is what I'm up to, but as Christmas cards, Easter cards. It's astonishing um, what they got up to. So in this sense, um, anatomical textbooks are very often galleries of faces without names, um, uh, uh, bodies, people whose stories we may never come to know. My favorite example, which came up in the course of doing the sick rose, is this remarkable image. There's a lot we could say about this. Firstly, um, this is showing the anatomy of, the, of the, the, the neck and the top of the sternum and the clavicle. We don't really need the heads. So why do we have these two rather beautiful portraits? Why do we have? Look at how carefully the hair has been drawn. Look at how carefully the, the individual facial, uh, facial features, the physiognomy, has been given here. Look at the characters, the two different kind of characters given um, to these two people. Why is this necessary? What does this add to the image? All about a certain style of objectivity, a certain kind of objectivity. But what I find most fascinating is the handsome, well-built uh, black man um, on the right of the, sorry, on the left of the image. We don't know his story. Where did he come from? Had he fetched up on the slab? Was this actually a dissection of a black man carried out in London in 1851? Or was this merely a face that the artist saw on the streets in London or Bristol and decided to borrow? Again, we simply don't know, but it would be fascinating to know. Now, this brings us on to the idea of atlases, the idea of representing knowledge. In an age when European nation-states were acquiring global empires, often by force, we might also see, I think, echoes of the geographical atlas in the anatomical atlas. Two very different kinds of map, but both seemingly giving, uh, both giving seemingly a neutral God's eye view of contested and conquered territories. There's a sense in which the anatomical gaze is an imperialist gaze. It's looking to understand, to order, to dominate and control. 
But power in these images is not nakedly expressed, but refracted through a set of aesthetic conventions. Early modern anatomical illustrations adopted the pious and painterly modes of Renaissance and Baroque art. Ecorchets posed in pastoral vistas, skeletons kneeling in prayer, and most famously in Rembrandt's series of anatomical lessons, um, the lineaments of bourgeois portraiture. Through the 18th and early 19th centuries, these conventions were replaced by a set of rules derived from the practices of mass dissection, less painterly perhaps, but just as carefully chosen to induce the desired effect. Body parts replaced whole articulated cadavers. Folded cloth concealed the severed edge of specimens, just as it softened the edge of a portrait or a bust. Faces, if they were shown at all, were shown in a state of sleep or death. A narrow palette of colours picked out different tissues and components. The now very familiar red for arteries, blue for veins, yellow for nerve fibres, and a deep Carpaccio-esque crimson for muscles. Of course, anybody who knows, anybody who's cut open a human body knows that this is not the case. This is simply a convention that's been brought in, again, to, to draw out different aspects of what you're looking at. Now, the conventions expressed in these illustrations were no more or less objective than any other representation of the human body. They were products of aesthetic and scientific traditions in flux, the result of artists and anatomists seeking to connect the facts of a single dead body with the wider truths on which medicine was coming to insist. 19th century images of anatomy and pathology were, as a rule, far less concerned with what we might call natural theology, the depiction of a human body made in the image of a benevolent god, but they were no less freighted with meaning um, beyond their overt medical content. The ambition and what I think we can call the progressive orientation, I think as historians we're rather suspicious of progress as an explanatory concept. It always comes weighted with political meaning. It always obscures more than it reveals. But I think medicine in the 19th century did acquire a self-consciously progressive orientation. Doctors started talking about progress in new ways. This ambition brought new immediacy to the ancient resonances of the vanitas, the, the inescapable triumph of death. Doctors and scientists could interrogate death in the morgue and the laboratory. They could turn a timeless eschatological truth into a biochemical fact. They could replace eternity with the deep time of stars and rocks. But the images they made still speak, I think, compellingly, movingly, of transience, the frailty of the flesh, the passing away of all things. It's probably a good sentence to end on. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you for listening to our History of Medicine lecture series, Case Notes. This podcast has been brought to you by the Royal College of Physicians of Edinburgh. We're a charity, and if you enjoyed today's show, head over to rcpe.ac.uk backslash heritage for more information and how to donate. Thank you.